this is going to be a loaded, <laughs> a loaded sermon this morning. There are some handouts in the back, and uh, if you pick one of those up, you're going to see how many verses I'm going to be going through this morning. And so, uh, you need to be prepared to be um, paging through your scripture, or you can just listen, and I'll read the passage, and I'm going to have some charts I'm going to put up while I'm doing that. We're in Luke 11, and uh, we saw couple of weeks ago, Tom gave us a great start in verse 1. And he spent the time there in verse 1 on prayer, and he showed us why we should pray. And he did a really nice survey of the whole gospel of Luke. And we saw how prayer was laced throughout, more than I had really thought about it, throughout the whole, the whole gospel of Luke. So a lot of different people praying, saw Jesus many times praying, and they were praying in many situations in different ways. And then last week, we had Brian who came and he spent uh, his time on the first part of verse 2. He showed us who we're praying to. God, our Father, and how important it is to remember when we pray, not if we pray, when we pray, that it's a very personal and intimate thing that we're doing with our Heavenly Father. But also, He's a holy Father, a holy God. And then He spent time in Psalm 99, and He used that to help us understand how our prayers can be aligned, <clears throat> our hearts, with God's heart when we pray. This morning, I'm going to take the next part of verse 2, and we're going to take a look at, well, what are we praying for? And we're going to see that this relies on God's will and purpose and one of the things we pray for involves his kingdom. Now, the preach team said, this is kind of an easy topic, so we're going to give this to Pat. <laughs> and I got to tell you, this topic is absolutely huge. And when we came into the Gospel of Luke, I never realized how big of a scope it is, but also how important it is. And now I'm going to try and share with you how prevalent it is in Scripture. So let me pray, because boy, I'm going to need help this morning. And uh, you're going to need help keeping up with me too as I go through it. So let's, let's pray and ask for help with this. Father, <clears throat> we thank you uh, you are such a good father to us, and uh, we enjoy being able to come to you and to lift up our needs and our prayers, and we praise your name first and foremost, and uh, we thank you then 
for your word. And as now, as we spend time in your word, we pray that your spirit is going to help us. It's going to help me to communicate, and it's going to help all of us to receive it and grasp it and allow it to mold and form us more into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus. So that's what we pray for this morning, and we do it in his name. Amen. Luke 11, verses 1 and 2. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. That's our three-word sermon this morning. Your kingdom come. My central point or priority, if you will, this morning would be that we should be praying that our will and God's will line up with each other. Now, we kind of, we, we don't necessarily see those words here, but in Matthew it says that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right? So keep that in mind as we're talking about the kingdom. But the overarching purpose is that our will and God's will line up with each other. Here on earth, just as it is perfectly done in heaven, that's going to bring God glory to his name. His name will then be hallowed. The thing we pray for so that he gets the glory is that his kingdom would come. All right? Now, to help us do that, I'm going to spend the first part of the sermon on the kingdom, making sure we understand what it is we really are praying for. And then, at, after we spend some time on that, then I'm going to take a look at, well, exactly, really, what does that mean when we pray for that? Yes, you're going to know what it is, but what, what part do we pray, uh, play with regards to the kingdom. So as I do that, uh, I'm going to, uh, to do a couple of things. Now, one is I'm going to try and revisit the concept of the Bible as a meta-narrative. You've heard us talk about that this way before, back when we were in Ezra and Nehemiah. We use this meta-narrative perspective to position the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the context of a bigger biblical narrative. We're going to revisit that, that again because really the kingdom is an overarching part of the whole meta-narrative that the Bible provides. Remember, we're talking about one book. Now, it has 66 individual parts, but it's one book. It has one author, God the Holy Spirit. 
Now, he used 40-some authors to write, and they wrote what he wanted them to write. And it's about one subject, Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have through him. One book, one author, one subject. The part about one subject is really, it's one story. And it's highlighted by an overarching framework called the kingdom. The kingdom is talked about in scripture many times, many places, old and new. Kingdom of God is a term that is pretty much just in the New Testament. Kingdom of God is also referenced as kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew, like 32 times. In Luke, kingdom of God is used 43 times. The preach team has spent a fair amount of time on this because it's such a prevalent topic that is laced throughout the gospel of Luke. It's a pretty grand framework. Something that may be a little bit helpful that I, that I found along the way when I was getting ready <clears throat> was something Alistair Begg used to help keep our head on straight throughout all of Scripture with regards to the kingdom. And he used a quote from somebody. He said, um, what then is the kingdom of God when we discover it? Well, it's God's people in God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. I'm going to give a, a brief perspective here of the kingdom by using a chart. I'm going to use a picture. And I'm deliberately going to start the meta-narrative, the beginning of the story, and I'm going to give you the ending first, and then we're going to fill in things in the middle. So, there, what, this, what this actually hopefully will help to accomplish is that... Um, on the left, you're going to see that we have the first atom, and on the right, you're going to see we have the last atom. In Genesis, we're going to go look at a passage, and we're going to see that first atom, and we're going to see he's actually in a kingdom. I never really thought of it that way before, but he is. And then at the end of the story, we're going to see the last Adam and a kingdom. And in both cases, the kingdom was on earth at the beginning of the story, the kingdom's on earth at the end of the story. That is God's design. Let's look at, at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to 
our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on earth. So in verse 26 and in verse 28, you see this word rule, right? That's kingdom language. Adam, the first Adam, was supposed to rule over a kingdom that God had created on earth. And it was a perfect kingdom, right? Now, what's interesting is that's what's going to happen at the end. We're going to have a kingdom. It's going to be perfect. And it's going to be on earth, too. It's part of God's design. The original design, though, got marred. It got totally uh, changed, if you will, when Adam and Eve sinned. And so that changed things. And that created the need for a savior, and it created the need for a future perfect kingdom. Now, you can get some more of this um, in Psalm 8. We're not going to go there. Uh, but in Psalm 8, the psalmist talks about what is man that you remember him, the son of man that you're concerned about him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You appointed him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, the writer in Hebrews carries on with that, and he says, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. That's yet to come. So earth was created. It was in a perfect state. God's creation was good, very good. The first Adam was to rule and subdue over that creation. But Adam and Eve sinned. Creation was no longer in a perfect state. We have a need for a savior and a future perfect kingdom. Now, if we go to the end and we go to the last book in the Bible to see how the story ends, we're going to be in Revelation. And I want you to go look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 6. <clears throat> John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, 
men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 20, verse 6. Now we're at the very end. The last three, four chapters in the book of Revelation deal with two things. One is the millennium, and the other is the eternal state, the new Jerusalem. 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. There we have it. Black and white. They're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years on earth. Now, I know not everybody necessarily understands the, the perspective of a millennium, and that's okay, but it's there. That's the way it's going to happen. Now, after the millennium, in chapter 21, it talks about a new Jerusalem coming down from earth to heaven. And that's the point when Jesus is going to hand the kingdom over to the Father. And we see that, and then the kingdom becomes eternal. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23 to 25. But each in his own order, Christ first, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ said is coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom of God and Father to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put enemies under his feet. The point here is the beginning and the end are going to be all according to God's design. Man reigned in the beginning over a kingdom on earth, a perfect kingdom, and at the end he's going to reign with Christ over a millennial kingdom, and then eventually in the eternal New Jerusalem for eternity. God's design started that way, and it's going to end that way. And we get the culmination of God's people in God's place under God's rule receiving God's blessing. Now, that's the overarching framework. I want to fill in the middle. I want to fill in now that timeline to see the rest of the meta narrative and how does this play how did it play out and how is it playing out for us today? There's events that relate to the points, there's some key events. Now we're going to be bouncing across a bunch of mountaintops. We're not going to go down into the valleys because we just don't have the time. But we're going to pick some key things along the way in the meta narrative. We're going to see uh, Abraham and the promises God gave him, Moses and the nation Israel, David, the promises God gave him regarding the kingdom, then Jesus and his proclamation about the kingdom, and after that, the apostles and Paul, and where they fit in this kingdom 
narrative. I'm using, by the way, uh, material, some material, from a book called The Story. Now, I know Doug is going through this with some of the college guys, and I think you're going to find it very interesting. It's really 10 weeks of material, and I'm going to cover it in 15 minutes. <laughs> okay? But that's okay. Uh, this is really a nice, good, comprehensive study of the things that we're going to be talking about. And I'm just trying to make sure we get a good understanding of kingdom so we know what it is we're praying for. And actually, that's what we're praying for. Chapters 1 through 11 in Genesis depict how the nations continually rejected the true God. And eventually, God causes a flood, and that flood starts things over, if you will. And he begins to unfold his plan, and he starts to do that through Abraham. So the next point in the chart, we're going to see Abra a little bit about Abraham, a little bit about Moses, a little bit about David. And with Abraham we see something that is often referenced as the Abrahamic covenant. And that's in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Let's just look at that briefly. So, in Genesis 12, 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you will, you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God chooses one man and his family to build a nation. And he's going to use that nation to eventually bless the nations of the world. And he specifically made a covenant here with Abraham to bring the fulfillment of the promise, which would solve the problem of the nations rejecting God. And we'll see in the future passages, if you will, if you were to study, you'd see that nation is going to be based in the land of Canaan. And it's going to happen through Abraham's ancestral line. Abraham's righteousness was based on faith in this promise, not on some personal righteousness through his own efforts. We continue, and we see Abraham has Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, the exodus from Egypt, and Moses is God's man. And he's going to tell us here in Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, the next part of the story. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, This you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves... You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God makes a covenant with Israel, the nation that was promised to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. And his intention was that that nation, Israel, that that would be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And in the future, we're going to see, in the tradition of Moses, through whom God would explain everything, a prophet. That prophet is going to be Jesus. Now after this, we enter a time where Joshua takes Israel into the land. They settle the land. You have a period of judges that happens in Israel. And then we come to what's called oftentimes the United Kingdom. Three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. You with me? This is kind of like the walkthrough, isn't it? Yeah. Saul, David, and Solomon. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, who, I'm, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes a covenant with David. And the covenant is that his throne would last forever. David saw that as part of the plan of God, making Israel a great nation and a great name for himself. And David used the Psalms to help instruct the people. We will see that the future king would come from Galilee. He would be both God and man. David foresaw that. And he foresaw that king as his Lord and that he would not undergo decay. Now, things kind of change. After Solomon, the kingdom splits in two. And we enter a phase called the divided kingdom. And that goes on for a number of years, hundreds of years. You have the split kingdom where the south is Judah and the north is Israel. And they both start to commit spiritual adultery. And God eventually says, that's it. I'm going to have to discipline you. And so he uses the Assyrians and that kingdom to come and take Israel and scatter them to the wind. And then later, some hundred years or more later, Judah still isn't paying attention, and so he has to discipline 
Judah. And he uses another kingdom called the Babylonians to take them and bring them into exile. Judah is in exile for 70 years before they come back to the promised land to rebuild the wall and the temple. But consider, from that point on, there are no more kings in Israel. This is a point in time which some of the Gospels reference as the times of the Gentiles. From here until the end of that ark is considered the times of the Gentiles. Now this strategy unfolds, and all of a sudden, we see Jesus who comes on the scene. Jesus comes down, the God-man, and he starts to preach the kingdom. We see that in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. We see it in Matthew 4, 17. We see it in Luke 8. In Mark, it says, Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus arrives on the scene. He proclaims the good news. He identifies himself as the Son of God. He tells his disciples that he's going to be killed, buried, and resurrected. But he also tells them those who are going to believe in him will be part of his kingdom. Those who believed was a small group of followers. They remained with him after his resurrection and ascension. And then they were supposed to proclaim this good news to the whole world. And thus become a blessing to all the nations. Peter proclaimed the gospel in Acts in five sermons, and Paul did it in his epistles. We see at this point, Jesus has really created the way or affected the way to the kingdom with his death and resurrection. His death and resurrection was absolutely necessary for the kingdom to happen. And we see that when we see him talking with Nicodemus in John 3, and he says, you have to be born again in order to the, enter the kingdom. Now on your, on your sheets, I want you to just make a little modification there. Say John 3, verse 3 through 5. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, in verse 3. And then later we see Paul talking about that in Colossians. Paul says, we're going to be rescued and we're going to be transferred. In Colossians 1, 12 to 14, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus dies. He gets resurrected. 
And now we come to the point where he's going to ascend back into heaven. And so we go into Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? There it is again. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs, but you're going to receive power when the Spirit comes on you, and you're going to be my witnesses. So he doesn't answer their question, does he? He doesn't answer it. But he does say, I want you to go and proclaim. He tells his disciples they're supposed to be witnesses. They're supposed to go to all the nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the nations. Tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit. They proclaim the gospel. They gather believers into communities called churches. And then we enter the next piece of the story. And now we're going to see where the church comes in and the apostles and so we unfold another part of the chart. We miss Jesus, Hunter. <laughs> Can't have this without Jesus. <laughs> okay, and then the next part is going to be the church. So bring that up. And this is going to be a huge piece of Scripture, so we're not going to be able to, to linger on it. Ephesians 2.11 through chapter 4.26. A lot of things in there about the church. And the key here was that it was a mystery, but now it has been revealed. And Paul's job was to help with the revealing and administering of that mystery. To preach to the Gentiles and to bring to light what that mystery was. And he also lays out what that church is supposed to look like, what those communities are supposed to look like. And they're supposed to be what people can see. They can see Christ in his fullness when that church, that community is operating like it's supposed to. And so he's spending time in Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians trying to help people understand this is what the church is supposed to look like to the point where even the rulers and authorities are amazed at what God is doing through the church. And then finally, we come to Matthew 24, another big pack passage, verses 1 through 31. But I'm only going to focus on verse 14. Jesus is talking about the end. He's talking about that point in time right where the ark comes down 
And he's highlighting some things we often refer to as the tribulation, seven years. But he says in verse 14, notice the language. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. All right? So now we're out to the end of that ark. And before the end comes, there's going to be a great increase of wars and natural catastrophes. But also, there's promises that have been made to Israel that have not happened yet. They need to occur. We will see that happen in the millennium. When Christ returns, he defeats the nations in a great battle. He establishes his kingdom. This is the 1,000-year millennium. <clears throat> and then Israel as a whole will respond to the gospel. Christ will be king over all the earth, and everyone will know who he is. The partial hardening that happened, that's talked about in Romans 9, 10, and 11, is now removed. And we enter the kingdom phase at the right-hand side. Now, a point to make here. Sometimes... We, we find ourselves in discussions. So is Israel there? Is the church there? What is it? Is it either or? No, it's both and. We're going to see Israel and the church in the future kingdom with the last Adam, Jesus, ruling and reigning, and it's going to be here on planet Earth. Now, I know many of us through the years have have been taught to be thinking about eternity in heaven. Well, that's not how the story goes. You're really going to be spending eternity with Christ and other believers here on earth, just the way God designed it at the beginning. The beginning of the story and the ending of the story are the same. So, for us today. If we go back to the sequence where Jesus comes on the scene and then he goes, he leaves, what happens? Well, the kingdom is proclaimed. Jesus had done everything that was necessary with his death and resurrection and ascension. And it really signaled the end of the beginning. He hasn't returned. Why not? Why hasn't he returned? I love the way Alistair Begg says this. He says, because he's looking for kids for his kingdom. It's as simple as that. Hence, Paul says to the Jewish believers of his day, don't you realize that God's kindness would lead you to repentance? So the king waits the moment of his final and ultimate enthronement so that we, who by grace have been made members of his kingdom, may live our lives in the last days. The period between his coming, his going, and his coming and we can live our lives to see unbelieving people become committed followers of Jesus. 
I think it's important to remember that passage from Colossians. Rescued from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son. God's on a rescue mission, and we're part of the rescue team. Okay? That's what we're supposed to be doing. Rescuing people from the domain of darkness by preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And now that Jesus has effected entry into his kingdom with his death and resurrection, all that's needed has been accomplished. We've been given the authority. We see that in Matthew 28. We have the authority that was given to Jesus, and he's saying, go proclaim, make disciples, and teach them all that I have taught you. So we're somewhere on that horizontal line underneath where it says the church, we're somewhere in there. We don't quite know exactly where on the line we are, but it doesn't matter. The job is the same. Go help rescue people from the domain of darkness. A final passage that I found very interesting, and it's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. So turn there, and we'll use that to help close us out this morning. Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. Now, I never quite completely grasped this parable correctly. So I'm going to kind of hopefully reposition some of your thought process on this too. Now the important part is the lead-in to the parable. Listen closely. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. There was a lot of expectation about the kingdom's going to come, the kingdom that's been promised, the kingdom that's been talked about through the ages. It's going to come. And Jesus says, hold on, I'm going to give you a parable. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom. Isn't that interesting? The question is, who do you think in the parable the nobleman is, and what do you think the kingdom is? It's a parable. Okay, so a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be an authority over ten cities. 
The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here's your mina. I kept it away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you're an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and repaying what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest? And then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said, Master, he's already got ten minas already. I tell you that everyone who has more shall be given from the one who does not have. Even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. This parable is about us and Jesus. Do you see it? Jesus is pretty much telling the audience, I'm going to go. I'm going to go, and I'm going to get a kingdom, and I'm going to come back. In the meantime, I'm going to give you resources that I want you to use towards the kingdom. I'm going to give you gifts that the Spirit is going to bless you with. I'm going to give you time. I'm going to give you talents. I'm going to give you finances. I'm going to give you a local community of believers called the church. And I want you to go and use it to proclaim the kingdom of God. And when I come back, then we're going to talk about how did you use what I gave you. Think about that. Think about when the Lord returns and we're face to face and he says, so how did you handle your time? How did you handle your resources? How did you handle your finances? Did you use it like I wanted you to for the kingdom, proclaiming the gospel? That's us today. Think about it. Think about it. Now, what's hopefully helpful is when we pray, we're praying for the kingdom to come. We're praying, and it, it envelops and embodies what we need to go proclaim the gospel of the kingdom so that it would come. Now, we don't bring the kingdom in. Some people think we bring the kingdom in. No. You read the passages, the only one who brings the kingdom in is Jesus. Okay? Question is, are we helping to populate the citizens of that kingdom with the gospel proclamation? That's our job. That's what we're supposed to be doing until the king returns. One book, one author, one subject. The end of the story, the same as the beginning of the story. God's communion. Amen?